everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast hosted by me, Dr. Colby Taylor. Um, I am a licensed psychologist in the state of Tennessee and an assistant professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University. Uh, today, I thought we would talk about telehealth, which is called many different things. Uh, you might hear it called distance therapy, online therapy, telepsychology, telecounseling, distance counseling, or telebehavioral health, among other things. Um, you might have seen it advertised on television. Uh, Michael Phelps has a commercial for Talkspace. Um, speaking of Michael Phelps, maybe we'll do an episode on the psychology of the Olympics coming up since the Olympics start, I guess, in about a month. Um, anyways, telehealth has become huge uh, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've been to a few continuing education seminars on telehealth over the past year and a half. And I think I've learned a lot. Um, and I think telehealth has come a really long way uh, in the past five or six years. Uh, when I did my internship in Hawaii, we had sort of a crude telehealth uh, mechanism called The Bridge, uh, which used sort of the old school rolling TVs that you might have used when you were in uh, elementary school or something, and it had like a webcam that was hooked up to it. So you'd uh, cart one of those big TVs in with a webcam on it. Um, you would log in. It would be connected to some sort of modem. I don't know exactly how it worked. Um, and we could have our uh, discussion between, we, there were different interns on different islands. Um, and obviously we couldn't fly to Oahu or centralized location to meet face-to-face -face every week. So this allowed us to discuss our cases each week um, during sort of grand rounds. And it would also allow us to offer service provision to outer islands that might not have a psychologist or many psychologists, um, like Nihau, which is the forbidden island. Um, Nihau... Um, the, the kids of Niihau are served by the, the school district in Kauai or like an island like Lanai. I don't know if Lanai has any psychologists or not. Uh, but anyways, it allowed for service provision across islands, which was pretty cool. Um, so Hawaii was sort of a, a pioneer in telehealth. I think Alaska and some of the rural western states like Idaho and Montana and Wyoming uh, have been working with telehealth for, for a few years too. Um, but anyways, there's a few issues I want to talk about related to telehealth. And the first is encryption, right? So um, if you're on FaceTime, if you're on Skype, uh, it's really easily hackable. Uh, and normally we wouldn't want to do therapy, telehealth, through something like Skype, which anybody can access and um, uh, it's not that hard. There's not that many barriers to hack. Um, something like Skype or FaceTime, at least as far as I understand it. It's probably way too complicated for me to do something like that. Um, but as far as I understand it, it's sort of slim pickings for, for hackers that are out there. Um, and so we have to worry about EPHI. And if you're in the healthcare world, you probably know what PHI stands for. PHI stands for Protected Health Information. We add the E in front of it. It's Electronic Protected Health Information. And it's part of HIPAA. Uh, HIPAA, of course, is the acronym H-I-P-A-A, which stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Um, it probably sends chills up the spine of a lot of service providers, right? We, we live in fear of uh, ha having a HIPAA violation. Um, and then also we have to worry about EPHI a little bit if you're in an educational setting uh, with FERPA, which stands for the Federal Rights and Privacy Act. And uh, these are obviously federal legislation. You might have more strict institutional policies 
um, that go above and beyond the requirements of the law if you work for like the VA, the Veterans Administration. Uh, so we have to worry about encryption. Are you using the right software when you're doing telehealth? Another E acronym. So a lot of service providers, whether you're seeing clients in the traditional face-to-face -face method or through telehealth, use this E acronym, EMR. And EMR stands for Electronic Medical Records. Uh, so instead of keeping your medical records in sort of an old school file cabinet or something like that that could get damaged by fire or a flood or something, um, we can store them electronically uh, and they take up a lot less space. Um, but these have their own privacy concerns, um, especially the ones that use cloud-based technology. We've actually had some problems with EMR being compromised in the past. Um, therapy notes, uh, which a lot of psychologists and counselors use to keep track of their therapeutic notes, um, was actually hacked back in 2017, and there was sort of a ransomware attack. Uh, so that's not particularly encouraging with, you know, something that's sensitive like therapy notes that are some hackers have access to. Um, therapy notes, by the way, is always like advertising to me on my Facebook wall. Uh, so maybe I need to check it out. Um, ethically, your therapist should tell you how your records are going to be stored and for how long they're going to be stored before they're destroyed in their informed consent document at the beginning of a therapeutic relationship. Uh, anyways, back to encryption. So normally you would use special encrypted software for telehealth. And I think about all of my colleagues that are doing telehealth now are using encrypted software. They're paying for something uh, that encrypts uh, their communication with their clients. But they don't technically have to do that right now. Uh, March 30th, 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights issued a temporary suspension that's still going on for the use of non-HIPAA compliant technology during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so based on this suspension, you can use Skype, you can use FaceTime, you can use Cisco WebEx, you can use Microsoft Zoom, you can even use Facebook video chat for therapy. Again, I don't know any of my colleagues out there using Facebook video chat for therapy. It's not advisable, but right now I guess it's technically permissible. Uh, importantly with this, with the suspension, the video communication has to be what we call non-public facing, meaning you can't post a therapy session or you can't do therapy on a public wall. Like you can't do therapy through a TikTok or through Facebook Live or for something like that where other people can see you. So there still needs to be an expectation of privacy. Um, so that's encryption. Another thing that comes up with telehealth is licensure. So with licensure, you practice, if you're a therapist, in the state that your client is in. So it's client location that really matters. So if I'm licensed in Tennessee and I want to do telehealth with somebody in Wyoming, I have to be licensed in Wyoming. Otherwise, that's a no-no. That's a um, that could be a crime in the state of Wyoming. So legally, you practice in the state that your client is in. And that's really tricky in a situation like Memphis, right? So I'm in Memphis, and Memphis is the southwestern corner of Tennessee, so in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I can be in two other states. I can be in Arkansas and Mississippi. And, you know, normally if I had an in-person, um, if I had an in-person office, right, I would get clients probably from Mississippi, Arkansas, uh, Southern Missouri, maybe Kentucky, uh, maybe even Northwestern Alabama. Uh, and it wouldn't really matter because they're coming to my place in, in Memphis and I wouldn't have to worry about where they're actually from. But now I really need to screen to make sure that who I'm talking to 
is in Tennessee. And things can get, actually even get complicated if your um, client is on vacation somewhere, depending on what state you're practicing in. Uh, so this can create a legal headache. So licensure is a big deal. And we've run into some licensing issues that have been tricky with university counseling and psychological centers with the pandemic, right? So back in last spring, spring 2020, um, we had sort of this mass exodus from campus, right? Um, campus closed down uh, at the beginning of March and students went home uh, indefinitely for the end of the semester. And a lot of them were in therapeutic relationships with a counseling center or psychological services center staff member, right? All of a sudden that's cut short um, very abruptly. Uh, and one of the questions that came up was, can we continue to offer telehealth to student that might have gone home to Boston, Massachusetts, or another student that went to Tampa, Florida? Can we continue this therapeutic relationship? Um, and we can't. Um, legally, we can't do that because we're not, unless you're licensed in Massachusetts or unless you're licensed in Florida, you can't offer telehealth. So all of a sudden, these therapeutic relationships uh, were, were came to a abrupt and complete stop, um, which was really, really troubling. Um, because again, we're in a time of, of psychological stress, people being sent home with little notice. Um, so it was something that I actually write, wrote to the uh, American Psychological Association about. Uh, anyways, with licensure, you know, that was, that was something that we had to work through. We had to try to email them and find them a service provider that's licensed in their home area. And that uh, really was an issue regarding continuity of care. Um, anyways, a lot of people like telehealth. Um, telehealth offers greater accessibility to therapy, right? You can do therapy in your living room, right? You can do therapy in your pajamas, uh, both if you're a client and if you're a therapist. Uh, you don't have to drive anywhere, right? Uh, it cuts out time for commute. If you're in a rural area uh, and you had to drive, you know, two hours to the city for, for therapy, um, you don't have to do that anymore. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. It saves you gas money, saves you time. Um, on the flip side, there can be accessibility barriers, access to care barriers, if you don't have reliable internet or if you don't have a private space to talk, right? Um, you might be talking about an abusive spouse or a relationship issue uh, that you don't want the, your significant other to know about. And if you're doing therapy from home, it can be hard to sort of get away and, and talk about that sensitive issue. Um, so that kind of brings up another issue related to private spaces. Um, so some of the continuing ed things that I've been doing recommend that the therapist ask the client if they're able to move their camera to sort of pan their camera around the room to make sure no one else is watching or participating. Uh, that way you don't know, you know, if there's a child if, or you're working with a teenager, if their parents in the room looking over their shoulder, you know, telling them certain things because there is an expectation of privacy when you're doing therapy. Um, also, it brings up private spaces as a therapist, right? So if I'm talking about really sensitive issues um, and my wife's also working from home downstairs, I probably need to buy a noise machine or noise maker so she can't hear what I'm talking about, right? So it brings up all of these private spaces, privacy sort of issues. Uh, I also think there are definitely some things that are lost in teletherapy. As a therapist, and I'm sure as a client too, you can't really pick up on nonverbals as well as you can in person. And I also run into this with my teaching too. So I've been teaching a lot online and it's, it's just not the same as in person, right? Um, I like to see whether someone's fidgeting. It can be really important for diagnostic purposes, right? 
Uh, and I can see if their upper half is fidgeting on the computer, but I can't see if their leg or foot or something's fidgeting and you know, maybe how anxious they are, how uncomfortable they are in the session. I can't see how they walk into the session. Uh, that can give you really important information, how they show up to your session. Do they come in a car? Do they come in a bus? You know, uh, it, it gives you some really important background information on your client. Um, maybe what they do in the waiting room, how they act in the waiting room, how they converse with, um, you know, other people they might have come with, their family members or friends. That can be really important information. It sounds sort of voyeuristic now that I'm talking about it, but uh, I, I think that you can glean really important information from it. Um, in a physical therapy space, I might smell someone with poor hygiene, and that can be an indicator of stuff. And you can't really get any of this through teletherapy. So I think there are some things that are lost in this. Um, I don't think teletherapy works well for all people or all presenting problems. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Like with social anxiety disorder, as uncomfortable as in-person therapy might be, that exposure, uh, that discomfort might be invaluable as an exposure technique. You don't get that through teletherapy. And interestingly, teletherapy has shown some really promising results for treating serious mental illnesses for SMI, like schizophrenia and bipolar disorders. Uh, also, I, I really don't like teletherapy for psychoeducational assessments. So I wouldn't want to give an IQ test using teletherapy, although my wife's on a research project now and they've done some distance telehealth IQ test things. I'm not a fan of it. Um, I'm also not a fan for assessing things like ADHD or autism spectrum disorder um, using teletherapy. Um, I think there's definitely some things that are lost over the interwebs. Um, people, both therapists and clients that I've talked to, seem to really like uh, teletherapy. Um, client preference seems to be very high. There was a 2016, which was well before the pandemic. So it was a 2016 patient satisfaction survey by Polinsky and colleagues that found upwards of 94% of people were very satisfied by telehealth in general. And in this study, females especially preferred telehealth, which I think is really interesting. Um, so teletherapy, sort of a, a brave new world in psychology and in counseling and mental health in general. Uh, I don't see it going away, uh, but I also don't see it replacing in-person therapy. So we have a few mailbag items. Um, we have quite a few. I'm going to knock out a couple in this episode. And let's start with the most recent one first. This came through my inbox this morning. So here it is. I'm really enjoying your podcast so far. And admittedly, I'm a little sad I listened through your existing content so quickly. Uh, my only criticism is that I wish your audio quality was a little better. Uh, if you need more finances for equipment, maybe look into crowdfunding through something like Patreon. I would love to see this podcast thrive. So addressing that, this morning I actually did create a Patreon. Um, so I might have mentioned this in other episodes, but I'm doing all of this out of pocket. Um, I, I bought my own really cheap microphone from Amazon, which is probably why we have crappy sound quality. Um, and I also uh, pay through this website called Buzzsprout, like 15 bucks a month out of pocket to, to host these episodes. So uh, it's sort of a labor of love. Um, I did create a Patreon this morning. I really have no idea what I'm doing with it. Uh, but the website address, if you want to, I guess, donate, I don't know the right word for it, uh, or become a patron, is Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Abnormal Psychologist with no spaces. So Patreon.com slash The Abnormal Psychologist. Um, 
Uh, the letter goes on. I recently got diagnosed with ADHD. Could you do an episode about medication and therapy? Yes, I could add that to my list. I'd like to understand what is happening in the brain when they've taken when they're taken. I guess the medication is taken. Um, as for therapy, I can't say I've heard of any. I'd like to learn more. I can definitely talk about therapy and ADHD. Um, well, my fellow word nerd, the letter goes on. Thank you for your work so far. It's been a pleasure listening to your podcast. Looking forward to hearing more. Uh, thank you so much for that email. It's a great idea with Patreon. I apologize about the sound quality, and I will add ADHD um, treatment to the docket. All right, so I, I mentioned there were a couple other letters that came through. So here's another letter. I've been listening to your podcast and really enjoy your insights into different mental health issues, particularly bipolar uh, disorder. Um, I feel like I can relate to a lot of your talks, if not personally, then through people I've met along the way. I think you mentioned in one of your podcasts, it could have been the one on bipolar, that there's a genetic link between major depression and bipolar. My first question is, could there be a link between a personality disorder, such as borderline personality disorder and bipolar? Uh, and I'm going to get to that in just a second, or I'm going to talk about how I'm going to get to that in just a second. Uh, but I'm going to go on with the letter. Um, I was wondering if you could dedicate an episode to borderline personality disorder so I could continue to gain some insight into this disorder. Um, and this kind of segues to another letter that I received. So here's another letter. Um, hello, I love your podcast, The Abnormal Psychologist. I found it on Spotify last week, and I'm already midway through season two. Um, personally, I would like to request a further in-depth episode on uh, borderline personality disorder. Also, I'd like to say I wouldn't mind more in-depth episodes on any and every abnormal psychology topic by you. I understand the knowledge you share and the way you deliver it makes it much easier to understand, so even longer episodes would be fine by me. Anyways, I hope you feel encouraged by this email to keep up the great work and congratulations on your second child. And that's the end of that mailbag request. So we have two mailbag requests for borderline personality disorder um, for a deep dive episode into borderline personality disorder because I think we might have addressed it in personality disorders uh, in the first season, but we can go way more in depth. So that means the next episode will be a deep dive in depth um, episode on borderline personality disorder. I'm really excited about that request. Uh, a lot of my students, when I teach psychopathology at the college level, are super interested in borderline personality disorder. Uh, so I'll go back and immerse myself in the borderline personality disorder literature, and uh, we'll do an episode on it uh, in the next two weeks. Um, as always, if you have any questions, comments, criticisms, whatever, you can email them to me at ctaylo at cb.edu. You can put the subject line mailbag and I'll get back to them when I'm not on diaper duty or something. Um, anyways, that's it for this episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.